You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between. We at the After the Timeout podcast would like to take a full timeout to talk about V-Reps basketball. Coaches, do you get frustrated by how some players just cannot seem to learn your offensive system? Are you spending countless hours teaching your offensive system to your team just for them to forget by the next practice? You should check out V-Reps. V-Reps was founded by basketball players and coaches to create tools that make learning plays easily a reality. V-Reps allows coaches to turn their 2D playbook into a 3D interactive video game that players can watch on any mobile device on their own time. Don't just have players watch film, have them live it and control the players so that they have a better, more efficient learning experience. It's free to try. Go to vreps.us to sign up today. On today's episode, we are joined by Brent Tipton, head coach of Guam 17U national team. Uh, tremendous Twitter follow, uh, has a lot of uh, uh, clinics and, and videos out there. Um, coach, how are you doing tonight? And thank you for joining us. Thank you, Todd. It's really just a pleasure to be here. And it's in the morning, our time on Friday. I know it's Thursday evening, your yeah, time. I should have said morning. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, Cause our listeners, you know, your time is in the evening, but it's a pleasure to be here and just want to say thank you for the opportunity to share and talk hoops. So we kind of just hit on that just for a second. We like to start every episode with a segment we call opening tip, which is just a little fun segment. You know, we, we like to find something unique about all our guests and obviously you live currently in Guam. So kind of tell our listeners, we're never probably going to have another guest on that, that's living in Guam. So tell our listeners just kind of a little bit about your journey and how you got there. In 2008, I graduated from college and my wife had graduated college a year earlier, but she spent some time on Guam working at a uh, camp here on Guam, fell in love with the culture, fell in love with the island. And when she came back to the States and right before we got married, uh, she wanted to move to Guam and me being fresh out of college. I, I really didn't have a plan for after what, what to do after I graduated college. So I said, sure, let's get married and let's move to Guam. So we came to Guam in 2008, each with two suitcases. So a total of four suitcases. And then 13 years later, we've had a couple of houses, obviously a couple of cars. We've had a kid and those four suitcases have turned into um, where we have established our roots as a family here on the island of Guam. And so that's kind of how we got here. Uh, Guam is a small island of about 185,000 people. But even though it's small, it, it provides tremendous opportunity. And we're really thankful and, and blessed to have had the opportunity to live here. And we're, we're definitely excited to, you know, grateful that we started our, our family's roots here. And Guam will always have a a special place in our heart uh, as we, you know, continue on in our life. 
So that kind of leads me into the, the first question we want to ask you. Uh, you know, you're obviously coaching in the, the FIBA setting. You're coaching in the international setting. Um, and we just obviously had the Olympics. Um, so we wanted to kind of talk to you about what are the things that internationally maybe are different than in America and, and maybe what leads to that difference, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the pros and cons of that. That's a good question. I think the biggest thing are just the rules in between what high school players are going to play under and then the rules that FIBA, the FIBA rules that we play under. So some of the obvious, obvious ones are we have a 24-second shot clock. Uh, coaches cannot or uh, players cannot call a timeout from the floor. It has to come from the table. There's goaltending. Uh, once the ball hits the rim, we can knock the ball off the rim. There's an eight-second backcourt. Uh, quarters are 10 minutes long. Uh, you get five timeouts, uh, two, you, you can only use two in the first half and then three in the second half. Um, there is five fouls. Once you get to five fouls and you're automatically shooting two free throws in that quarter. Um, and it, I believe that the FIBA game really emphasizes and enhances uh, giving power to the players to make decisions and, and kind of taking the coach out of joystick coaching or manipulating what players are going to do during the course of a game, just because we don't have that control as much as what might happen in the United States or um, the U S style of play. I think another thing, the difference between a USA player and a foreign player, if we believe that the best player development is coaching development, then I think that coaches are developed in different countries internationally as they are in the United States. So I would argue that an international coach spends a lot more time on their development and other countries spend a lot more time in their coaches' development than the USA does. So I've been around both stateside coaches and international coaches. And from my experience with both sets of coaches, I feel that international coaches invest a lot more time into their coaching development. And I think the biggest reason is because in the United States, United States model of play or model of how they teach the game is always coupled with education. Whereas in, let's just take Europe, for example, Europe doesn't link or couple education and sport. They, they separate education and sport. And so the coaches are able to either that be their professional full-time job, whereas a United States coach, he may be coaching high school, teaching classes and coaching, or as a college coach, you know, a large percentage of your time is recruiting and then you coach but in Europe and in international coaches they get to spend a lot more time on their own professional development so I, I would say that's probably the reason why or a couple of reasons why I believe that there is a, there is a uh, stark contrast between a USA and a foreign player and I think a lot of it has to come down to their player development as a result of the coaching development within that country or within that FIBA zone you know that we've we've had a few guests on uh, that that have talked about that coaching development in the the FIBA side, and and I always find it very interesting. Um, it, it's almost like the coaches work their way up as well. So kind of in that thought of talking about progression, um, when you're putting in something new, what are kind of your teaching progressions or techniques, uh, and then kind of go into what does a typical practice you know, maybe mid-season look like for you uh, as far as teaching something? Sure. So when we're teaching something new to the to our team or we're in our practice design, um, I think 
kind of going back to, to, to talk about teaching progressions, I don't think that there is a certain formula in teaching progressions when teaching something new, but I do think there are ways that we can apply and adapt training to meet the needs of our players when they're learning something new. So I don't think that there is a best teaching method in teaching, but I do lean more towards ecological dynamics and in, in using games of purpose with the constraints led approach. So in our teaching methodology and pedagogy, I think this phrase is really important for us as coaches to, to live out. And the phrase is this, the statement is this, instead of coaching the way that I want to coach, I must coach in the way that the athletes learn. So we break down our teaching progressions in our program into three different categories. We have skill acquisition activities, we have game-based activities, and then we have tactical activities. So a skill acquisition activity uh, includes teaching our fantastic five. So our fantastic five, are shooting, dribbling, passing, pivoting, and then guard your man. For initial learning, we teach skill acquisition activities in isolation on air, but we must quickly progress to applying our Fantastic Five in an open environment. So for instance, with passing in our Fantastic Five, we not only want to teach the individual technique of how to make a correct pass, but also when, where, and why to execute the correct passing technique. So in order to teach this in our skill acquisition activities, we need a defender to add context and perception. And this perception can either be through a scripted or guided defender, but understanding the process of perception actually coupling will add meaning and context to our skill acquisition activities. So I feel like a, a lot of times a pitfall we coaches fall into when teaching new skills to our team is we're gonna teach the skill in isolation independent of how the skill is applied during performance. So to ensure that our Fantastic Five and our skill acquisition activities translate to live play, we have to quickly progress from a blocked on-air practice to more random practice that adds complexity and decision-making so the player knows not just how to execute a skill, but when, where, and why to execute a skill. So for instance, it's important that we not necessarily teach players what to see, but more important, importantly, where to look as they scan the defense to apply a skill. So our skill acquisition activities are going to teach what to see. So if we're working on a passing technique in our fantastic five, an example of a skill-based activity were, would be where players are two on O, one player is at the top of the key and another player is in the left corner. So the player at the top of the key is gonna get paint penetration going right. And the player in the left corner is gonna lift out of the corner to the 45 for or, or on penetration reaction. In a skill-based activity, we're going to teach the passing technique of an over-the-head hook pass, a pass outside the body, so the player lifting out of the corner or to the player lifting out of the corner. So when we are teaching the passer in the skill-based activity, we're teaching them where to look because it's 2 on 0 and there, there isn't any defense. So the only thing the passer sees is his teammate lifting out of the corner, and we can work on the skill acquisition of throwing passes on time and on target to the player lifting out of the corner. So our terminology for this is we want our passer to throw strikes. So just as a pitcher, we want to throw a strike to the catcher in a baseball analogy. We want after penetration, our penetrators pass to be a strike to the receiver's shot pocket on time and on target. Now a games-based activity. So we have skill acquisition activities and we have uh, games-based activities. Let's say we're working on the mid pick and roll three on three. We want to teach players not just where to look, the player lifting out of the left corner, but we want to teach them what to see. 
So the reason we teach a player to make an overhead hook pass to a player lifting that left corner to the, to, uh, to the 45 on their penetration reaction in our 2 on no skill acquisition activity is when the weak side defender defending the corner tags the roller on a mid-pick and roll. So now we're teaching players through a game of purpose of what to see as they scan the weak side defender and then read the weak side tag. So now the skill acquisition of a passing technique out of a mid-pick and roll 2 on zero is applied in a games-based activity and now we're adding context to passing technique in our fantastic five and then letting skill acquisition activity translate to live play of when, where, why, and how to execute a skill. And the passing skill we're working on is when, why, where, and how to make this overhead hook pass by throwing a strike to an open player lifting out of the corner as a result of the weak side tag in a mid pick and roll. So through a games-based activity, we are now taking the skill acquisition of where to look and adding what to see. What we want them to see is the weak side tag and where, um, uh, where we want them to look is at their teammate lifting out of the corner. So there is value in both skill acquisition activities and games-based activities. And where we can err as coaches is spending too much time on skill acquisition activities and not loading these skill-based drills into live play or uh, in games of purpose. And then lastly, after our skill acquisition, after our games-based activities, we're working on tactical activities. So like tactical activities are different from games-based activities because tactical activities replicate exactly what will happen in the game. So for instance, in a game context or live play, we're going to execute a mid-pick and roll, but there's going to be a phase of play before the mid-pick and roll and a phase of play after the mid-pick and roll. A games-based activity is only going to work on the actual mid-pick and roll three on three, but will not link any other phase of play. So when we incorporate tactical activities into our practice design, part of uh, this tactical activity is establishing order. So establishing order in a group invasion sport like basketball is the method we coaches use to teach players to self-regulate while transitioning from one phase of play to another phase of play. And not only do we need to teach players how to self-organize and triggering the mid pick and roll, but we have to teach this change of phase in a chaotic environment through live play. So in order for a concept to transfer to the game, it must ultimately progress to a version that starts in a previous phase of play. And if a previous phase of play before getting into a mid pick and roll could be transition offense. So in our tactical activities, we want to link seamlessly the mid pick and roll into play after we do not find advantage in transition, let's say in the first six to eight seconds of the shot clock. So in order to establish order, players have to be lag free and flowing from one phase of play to the next phase of play. And then we do this in our tactical activities. So linking, to finish up here, to link our tactical activities back to our skill acquisition activities, when we get into mid pick and roll in live play, the creator coming off the mid pick and roll will now be able to apply the passing skill in our fantastic five that we, um, that we did two on no and have context of not only where to look, but what to see because we worked the mid pick and roll in a games based activity three on three. And now they are applying those skills into our tactical activity of five on five. So this is how we are going to progress our teaching or what we're going to teach to a, a new team um, throughout our season. As we get to the midpoint of our season, 
we're doing less skill acquisition activities and more games of purpose and then tactical activities uh, to work on the whole method five on five. So that's basically how we would teach something new uh, to our team. And then those are the three phases that we would work through um, in our practice design. Okay, so now I wanna get into terminology that you're using with that learning and development process. Um, how are you using that to help your players, uh, you know, kind of gain that knowledge and, okay, this is what we mean when we say lift from the corner or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. What is your terminology system that helps those players learn? That's, that's great. And this is something that I feel like I'm trying to get better at. So I, I still may have some knowledge gaps here with trying to help players with uh, understanding terminology. Um, but a book that I recommend to help with this process and a book that I'm reading currently to work through this process is Doug Lamov's book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And so some of this stuff is some thoughts that I've journaled through his book, but when we're using terminology or, or vocabulary to help during um, teaching or, or, or practice, um, the biggest reason why we want terminology with teaching our players is we want to enable a player to make a decision without my intervention or without a coach's intervention. So can we provide players with descriptive cues during training so they can self-correct and self-regulate and then attach those teaching phrases to mistakes that they're going to potentially make in a game. So again, we'll go back to the statement. Instead of coaching the way I want to coach, I have to coach in the way athletes learn. So a question to ask is, is my terminology and teaching phrases simple enough and descriptive enough where a word or phrase can contain an entire, entire paragraph of teaching? So players make connections better and learn faster when they have words to define the concepts they are applying. So having a, a name for a concept is going to increase the likelihood that players are going to remember it. So Doug Lamoff says language is the economy of coaching. Players learn faster when language helps them connect what they are learning. So we must have descriptive cues and phrasing to help us coach on the fly. Peter Lonergan says, and he's the high performance director for Basketball Australia. He says teaching sound bites, not in soliloquy. So what he means by this is, when a player makes a mistake, we need to have a quick word or phrase to reinforce what has been previously taught instead of giving a 10 minute coaching clinic and addressing a player's mistake. So we wanna have shared vocabulary with our players. So players can self-regulate and self-correct during their athlete error. This shared, shared vocabulary is gonna help with our communication as coach and, and our shared vocabulary or our terminology is gonna help the, the player understand the technical aspect of the skill they're trying to apply. So when players can name the skill through their vocabulary or terminology that we're using as coaches, they're gonna become more aware of what a concept is and then understand how and why to execute that concept. So an example of terminology that we use in the pick and roll to help players self-correct and phrases we use to, uh, to coach on the fly are, uh, we'll take the screener, for example. So we're going to give the screener, uh, when we're teaching them, uh, go, as they're setting the pick and the pick and roll, we want them to arrive alone. So in this phrase of arrive alone in the, in the pick and roll, our players can chunk a large amount of information into this phrase. So arriving alone means we want the screener to sprint into the screen so they come without their defender, or we want them to set a ram screen so their defender is occupied 
in another defensive action so that when the screener sets the screen, their defender is occupied with providing either help on the, on the previous screen set and they arrive late into their predetermined, uh, predetermined ball screen coverage. This is gonna help enable the screener to arrive alone. The second phrase that we use in teaching the screener in the pick and roll is to fly at the defender's feet. So in this phrase, our screener can chunk a large amount of information in regards to changing the angle of the screen based on how the on-ball defender is defending the creator. Let's say the on-ball defender looks like he will be going over the screen but at the last second gets into ice coverage, the screener will change the angle at the last second to create advantage and then set the screen based on the direction of the defender's feet. Now that's a mouthful for a coach to say during the course of a practice or a game. So instead of taking a minute to describe, um, to tell the player how to change angles at the last second, we just say uh, fly at the defender's feet. Um, another, another phrase that we're gonna say in our terminology um, is, uh, giving them a coverage uh, coverage dependent type of screen. So if we know that the, 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 the coverage is an aggressive coverage and a hard hedge, uh, we're going to tell them to set a touch and go screen. So that short phrase and that terminology is going to give uh, a description to the screener that instead of uh, hanging around in the screen, they're going to get quick contact time on the, on the ground. They're going to touch the ground and get out of the screen and exit the screen because we've already created advantage with putting two on the ball because uh, the defense's coverage is in aggressive coverage. So these are just some of the examples that we're teaching our screeners in the pick and roll so that we can coach on the fly. And then if a player makes a mistake, let's say they come, uh, they don't sprint into the screen and they do not arrive alone in the screen. Now we, all we have to say in a quick three to five seconds, you need to arrive alone. And now the player has the background knowledge um, to, to understand what we're trying to teach when we say to arrive alone. Okay. So you got all, all that, you know, your basic stuff in your, you're kind of getting ready to go. Uh, what are some of your, your triggers for your offense, your base concepts? Um, and then, you know, what are your players looking for in your offense? So, uh, in our offensive triggers, we're we're teaching a phrase i guess the underlying thing that we're teaching space before advantage advantage before shot so we must have the correct space before we can create an advantage and we have to have an advantage before we can take a shot so we can create advantage on offense in three ways so the three ways that we can create advantage on offense is first with the pass the second is with the drive. And then the third one is with the conceptual trigger. So it's going to take all five players collectively on offense to create an advantage. And then at the point of that advantage created, all five players are working together to turn that advantage into an open shot. We have lab labeled advantages into two categories. The two categories are a big advantage or a small advantage. So a small advantage is on the catch, the defender is closer than arm's length dist distance to the receiver. So this would be um, um, either a shot or a catch versus a short closeout. Uh, this would be a, a catch where before the catch, the, the, the receiver has their hands down. Um, and then we have, we, we have classified shot selection criteria with this small advantage as that shot is contested 
Um, the receiver is unbalanced, the receiver is not in range, or the receiver is not in, uh, in rhythm. Now, on the flip side of that is a big advantage or a big advantage shot. So the, a big advantage for us would be on the catch, the defender of the receiver is farther than arm's length distance on the catch. So this could be a shot or a catch versus a long closeout. And in this catch, the shooter is shot ready. And then the shot selection criteria for this catch would be the shooter, the shot is not contested, the shooter is on balance, or the shooter is in range and in rhythm. So everything on offense comes down, do we have space before we create an advantage? And then how we generate advantage with our players is through their first touch decisions. So our first touch decisions for our players are on the catch, they have zero seconds to make a decision. And the decision that they're either going to make based upon how the defender closes them out is are they going to shoot it, drive it, move it. So these, this first touch decision is going to under, underlie um, if we have space, do we create an advantage through our space, whether that's through the pass, through the drive, or through a conceptual trigger? And then do our players make the correct decision on their first touch to leverage this, this advantage? So if we have not created a big advantage or a small advantage off the pass or off penetration, then we need a conceptual offensive trigger. So these triggers can be a ball screen, a DHO, or a get. But what we want out of our triggers is that at the moment of an um, the, at the moment an offensive advantage is triggered, we go back to the phrase: Do we have space before advantage? Do we have advantage before a shot? And all five players must move the ball within our, our space team to turn any advantage into a great shot. So advantage is triggered with any two-on-the-ball moment or any two-on-one numerical advantage. And this is why we can leverage an advantage with the pass when we have numerical advantage two-on-one or leverage an advantage with the drive when we create a two-on-the-ball moment as a result of defensive rotation on penetration, uh, which would be where the on-ball defender and the rotating help defender is on the ball. So where we lose offensive advantage in the possession is when it, uh, when the ball stops, we see the players, when the ball stops, advantage stops. So we're going to lose advantage when our offensive players don't have the, the correct first touch decisions or um, when our ball movement or penetration is neutralized by the defense. So when the defense has neutralized our ball movement or our penetration, we now need to find a trigger to put two on the ball or create a two on one numerical advantage. Um, and this is where we get into our offensive triggers. So one of the offensive triggers that I like to, to use, especially with our, our youth players um, is the get. So the get is a precursor to how we're gonna teach the pick and roll. And what a get is, is a get is a, a throw and go between a guard and a big. The guard's gonna throw a pass to a big and is gonna chase his pass to receive a hand back from the big. So the guard can either attack straight off his hand back or play with pace and then set up the pick and roll. Um, and, and the trigger, it can be ran anytime or or it can just be used out of a trigger, whether that's uh, we, advantage as we, we haven't created advantage through our passing or penetrations, so we make it get an automatic or um, that can become part of a set that uh, we're using on offense. And then the reason why we use a get for the younger players is because it simplifies reads for both for both players involved. So. Um, both the pass and the receiver don't have to use a live dribble to set up the get. Um, and then 
a lot of a lot of times we we use the get if we're we're working with a player that is a um, a non ball handler. So a get's a great way to get a non shooter into a pick and roll concept with ha without having to use a live dribble to set the pick and roll. And then the last thing I, I like to get is the get is going to allow us a deep paint catch. So a get can happen inside the three-point line, whereas a pick and roll is typically set up outside the three-point line. So a get's going to allow us to get our first attacking dribble inside the three-point line. And this is going to force uh, the defensive coverage into early help situations. And so these are the some of the the reasons why we're using offensive triggers and and why we get to an offensive trigger um, in the last phase of when we're trying to create advantage on offense, if we have not created advantage with the pass or with uh, penetration, uh, we're going to get to and try to find some type of offensive trigger. Uh, and get is one of those ones that we like to teach and our players enjoy playing with. So that, that's perfect, Coach. You, you kind of led me into our, you know, the next topic we wanted to hit with you about gaining advantages. So, you know, you've talked about trying to find places to gain advantages and obviously maintain the advantages. So, you know, for example, in the past, we've heard you talk about run and jump, tagging up, two-sided fast break. You know, for you, how did you come up to decide on those, those systems or, or those advantages specific to you? And how can a coach go through that process a little bit? We, when we're thinking through what is best for our team and, and putting our, our team in situations to be successful, obviously that's personnel driven. And it also depends on the competition that we're playing, but in order for us as a small country in FIBA Oceania to be, to find any type of success or especially at the youth level is we have to find a way to be an outlier. And so a couple of ways that we've discussed on how we can be an outlier and do something that may not just be creative, but maybe divergent in that um, it's not necessarily thinking outside the box, but it is taking something that most everybody does, but finding a way to enhance that or to make that work for us. Uh, we decided there's, there's three things that, two to three things that really work for us in, in order to create advantage as a small country and as a small team. The first thing that we, we discovered two to three years ago was the two-side transition. So we're transitioning to a five-out spacing template and we're trying to shoot shots within the first six to eight seconds of the shot clock because we believe earlier shots in transition hold greater value and there's some data that backs up why we want to play with this style of play the second thing that we discovered and we we realized that helps us create this advantage because we're a small small country not just population wise but our players are small is the concept of tagging up for our defensive transition so we want to tag up not only to create extra possessions on offense, but that goes right into our philosophy of transition defense of trying to make it five on five as early as possible in the transition, but also puts us in a position, like you said, to run and jump and create extra offensive possessions in that way. Um, and then the third way that we're trying to create advantage uh, through through us being a smaller country is just through our offensive style of play. And, and again, we're, we're not trying 
kind of be a team that is using scripted continuity, but we're more trying to, to use triggers to create and leverage advantage on offense so that it becomes less scoutable and less predetermined, not only for us, but for the opponent that is trying to defend us um, on the offensive side. So those are three ways that we've really tried to kind of to be an outlier in the, the style of play that we have. And it's more so because of what our makeup is as a smaller country and as a smaller country that is smaller in stature. Okay, so you talked about the why of tagging up, right? Because you guys are pressuring, you guys are running and jumping. Um, and you, know, you see it more and more now. You see it on Twitter. You see it. Now there's a lot of guys that are, uh, you know, slapping the glass guys and all those guys are, you know, there's a lot of European and, and countries that are doing tagging up. So I guess we have the why. I'm kind of wondering how you, how you, how you're teaching that, right? Because it's not anybody who plays typical basketball. That's not a natural thing, right? You're usually told, oh, we're going to get mm -hmm. two back. You're going to crash. Um, so, so how are you teaching that? And then, you know, I guess the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages, what are you, what are you getting? And then what are you giving up in return? We're teaching what we're, we're using a games approach to coaching. So we, we alluded to earlier establishing order and how establishing order is going to link one phase of play, uh, one phase of play to another phase of play. So we're linking the offensive rebound to defensive transition. So when we're teaching tagging up, we're not teaching the, the technique of offensive rebounding or the technique of defensive blocks out in isolation. We're going to establish order by linking the offensive rebound to our transition defense. So how we work through tagging up is we don't drill it, we emphasize it. So every drill that we do, we're emphasizing the tag up of getting contact on a defender's high side. We call that a tagging bag. So we, we want to put the, the, the defender in a body bag and that just becomes imagery of burying that box out either deeper into the paint or closer to the baseline. So we're doing this in every drill, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one offensive drill, a three-on-three -three pick and roll um, small sided game, or when we're in our tactical activities of our spacing scenarios five on five, we're emphasizing tag tagging up. So when we're teaching this tag up, we have to incentivize a player not being lazy and, and I'm going to say get back in defense because we want them to uh, to duel with that box out. So for us, getting back would be something that is counterproductive to us tagging up. So we're going to incentivize that offensive rebound in practice by early on giving offensive rebounds plus three points and every time they obtain an offensive rebound. As we progress through the season, then we're going to we'll drop that to an, an incentive of maybe just plus one point in every single drill that we're doing. So we have to incentivize it. The, the second thing is we're working this, um, trying to link the offensive rebound uh, to transition defense. And so we're going to work on this five on five. And when we're, we're emphasizing the tag up, we're also, also emphasizing the correct uh, defensive transitioning principles that go into our transition defense. So some of the things that we're emphasizing Let's say we, we don't, we, we try to create a 50-50 opportunity on a rebound. We don't create that 50-50 opportunity. 
then our tag up principles are who you tag up on becomes your check in transition. So if the guy who boxes me out and I tag up on gets the rebound, then now my defensive transition responsibility is I am going to control the ball one-on-one. And then it, let's say I'm one pass away uh, on the, the player who uh, grabs the rebound. Then now my transition principles are I'm going to be up the line on the line in a one pass away gap. And then let's say I'm farthest from the ball when the ball is rebounded, then I'm going to be the rim protector and then still be on the line, up the line in my defensive triangle. Um, but we're trying to link that potential offensive rebound to our transition defense. So we don't drill tagging up two on two or three on three throughout the season in isolation. We'll, we may do that the first two practices we introduce tagging up, but we're going to be more into a games-based approach to this concept to where we're working on it five on five and it's emphasized in every drill that we do throughout the entire season. So coach, we wanted to uh, take you into just our last two segments. Uh, you know, we, the first one we call 30 second timeout. It's kind of a platform for you uh, to talk about whatever you want. It's maybe it could be about your program or uh, something you're passionate about or an outside organization or charity or a story from one of your travels or anything unique, 30 seconds, the floor is all yours. Sure. Yeah. Um, a quote that Robert Hemingway talks about is being apprentices in a craft that is never meant to be mastered. And so I read that quote maybe two years ago, and it's something that I tried to transform into my own coaching philosophy. And that as coaches, we have to be lifelong learners. And as, as coaches, the art of coaching is going to challenge us to be apprentices in a craft that is never meant to be mastered. And so I view that as the reason why we can't master this art of coaching is because we're working with emotional beings, our, our players, and then we're emotional beings as well. And so that, that's just something that is constantly on the forefront of my thoughts as I'm trying to be a lifelong learner throughout this coaching profession is to view myself as an apprentice in a craft that is never meant to be mastered. Awesome. Well, that's awesome, Coach. Uh, so, like, our last segment, just quick hitters. We're going to fire stuff at you. Could be basketball. Could be whatever. We've we've kind of gotten <laughs> goofy goofy on this one, but it's just kind of a fun segment to end uh, end our end our podcast, uh, you know, and kind of ended it not in the Silla Exodus's way or an official way. Um, so, first question we have for you, uh, an underrated international coach to learn from. Sure. I, I think – you know, there's so many great coaches and I, I wouldn't maybe necessarily call them underrated, but uh, some of the coaches that I collaborate with, I've learned a lot from are, um, if, if you haven't followed them on Twitter, they're must follows on Twitter, but Liam Flynn um, from Australia, he's, he's been a mentor of mine and is a great coach to learn from. Uh, the second one would be Peter Lonergan. So Peter Lonergan is the high performance director of basketball Australia. He has been really uh, transformational in helping me grow as a coach. Uh, and then some others that I really appreciate learning from Paul Kelleher from basketball, Ireland, uh, Mike DeCraker um, uh, from Belgium. He was previously with uh, elite athletes um, and 
obviously basketball immersion has impacted a lot of our, 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 our teaching and, and learning. So I think those are some of the coaches that uh, I, I enjoy learning from. All right. So how about a food that Guam is best known for or something you've enjoyed since you've lived there? So they, you go to college and you're going to get your, you're going to, you're going to, when you go to college, you're going to gain your freshman 15. When you come to Guam, you're going to gain your Guam 15. So <laughs> Guam has its own genre for food and they serve their, their best food at fiestas. So the best, the best tasting fiesta food that, that me and my wife like, uh, first of all, it's, it's grilled over tang and tang and wood and it, and it's just absolutely amazing. But at a fiesta place and it consists of red rice pancit, lumpia, barbecue chicken that's marinated in a soy sauce vinegar base. And then that soy sauce vinegar base is actually called finadeni. And then they have short ribs, tatizits, and uh, chicken kelleguin. So I know I gave you a lot of food, <laughs> but that's like, Sounds it's really the good. fiesta plate. Yeah, Sounds it's the really fiesta good. plate that, that Guam is known for. So I had to, I had to put in all the, the food that I appreciated about on that fiesta plate. All right, so let's talk about the most interesting or maybe exotic wildlife in Guam. So um, July 4th, 2011, uh, we were wakeboarding at five in the morning and we, me and my wife and our friends were on a jet ski wakeboarding. And while we were wakeboarding, we were wakeboarding with uh, dolphins. So there was a pod of dolphins uh, probably four or five or six. And we were, they kept wakeboarding. They were with us while we were wakeboarding. So that was pretty cool. But later on that day, we were on a boat out in a bay, um, you know, a, a bay of Guam. And as we were on this boat and also on the jet ski, there were, were a pod of pilot whales that approached mm. us. And so I was on a jet ski and I immediately jumped in with the pilot whales. Little did I know that they were potentially aggressive animals. And so uh, that all happened in one day, and that was really one of the most interesting, you know, times of seeing wildlife on Guam. How about we found this interesting? Maybe a country that people don't know is very basketball, quote unquote, crazy, or or a city that somewhere around the world that you've come in contact with that maybe people wouldn't know as a country or city that likes basketball but really does love the game. I would say the Philippines, and that's a, a country about three hours, three hours flight west of here. The Philippines is crazy about the sport from, from the grassroots level all the way up to um, their, their professional and, and then obviously national teams. But from our perspective, you know, we're used to the Philippines being so, I guess, crazy about their sport. But from a stateside perspective, you probably wouldn't know that, but even though the Philippines is small as far as their players are small in stature, they are huge as far as their heart and how much they love the sport in the Philippines. So, all right, next one. Your favorite team uh, to watch or study right now? That's a great question. I uh, Somebody had asked me that question uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I said I, I really don't have a favorite team to watch or study. Um, I just enjoy studying the concepts. And so if, a team, if I know a team is, for instance, right now, it's Slovenia with uh, Luka Doncic in the pick and roll. So I will study that team and, and Luka just to kind of see how they set up the pick and roll or, you know, what their, what their reads are out of the pick and roll, whether that's, you know, the, the, the partnership with the screener and the creator or, you know, what they're doing on the weak side. 
or what they're doing as far as actions to get into their pick and roll. So I, I guess it would be more so studying a, a concept, but um, I would say that's how I would watch and study through film. All right. So we wanted to finish with, you know, with the Olympics uh, and just kind of your take on the Olympics, anything that stood out, a, a concept, an idea, a team, a coach, uh, anything that stood out to you from the Olympics? You know, I'm heavily influenced by basketball Australia. And so I have a lot of coaching friends that are at the state level, uh, some at the national level and the gratitude that they had to win bronze. I think what people don't realize who are not around basketball Australia is the long-term plan that they have had to, to medal at the Olympics. And I think if you see inter any interviews by Patty Mills or Joe Ingalls or any of those guys, you're going to see the overwhelming gratitude and humbleness of supporting Basketball Australia and, and just the culture that they have created uh, from the top down. And so that was really cool to see Basketball Australia be successful with winning bronze. And I was really happy for them. And, and just I had tweeted that there's every coach that I've seen from Australia that were, you know, talking about them winning bronze, it just oozed with humility, but also that, that, that grit and growth mindset that a typical Australian has as a coach. So that's what really stood out um, to me in the Olympics. Well, coach, we, it, you provide such a unique perspective and, and we really appreciate you being on, um, you know, you, you provide so much information for coaches and, and just a unique perspective from regionally where you live, but just teams that you see uh, and, and styles that you see. So thank you again for being on. We, we really do appreciate your time. Thank you. And what you're doing with your podcast is when when I want to learn something, I'll, I'll go to a podcast or I'll go to a clinic and what you're doing with your sharing and, and, and enabling us coaches to learn is really, really impactful. So thank you for not just the, the opportunity to share, but also the opportunity to learn through your podcast and, and really the, the amount of coaches that you're impacting is, is great. So thank you uh, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout, or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching after the timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.